It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. Each month I begin a new true crime topic or theme and share one case per episode that connects to that theme. This month, I'll tell you stories of people who went missing and were feared dead. But months or even years later, they miraculously reappeared. While this may seem like a happy ending, there's a twist in each of these stories. Was the person who returned actually the missing person or an imposter? This first chapter in the series, Familiar Strangers, will be split into two parts. In this first part, you'll hear the story of the disappearance of Walter Collins and the boy who later claimed to be him, even with much evidence to the contrary. In part two, I'll detail how the real Walter Collins may have fell victim to a predatory serial killer. This is Familiar Strangers, The Disappearance of Walter Collins. Collins' first marriage was short-lived. In the brief time they were together, she didn't even know her husband's true legal name. But by the time her marriage had all but ended, she'd given birth to a son who was the true love of her life. Christine was born Christine Ida Dunn in 1888. She was a native of Los Angeles, California, and it was there that she met Walter Collins. Unknown to Christine, Walter had a criminal record and had spent time in prison. Perhaps wanting to go straight after meeting Christine, Walter didn't tell her about his past transgressions. Walter and Christine married, and she soon found herself expecting a child. But not long after Walter Collins Jr. was born in September of 1918, his father was arrested once again, this time for armed robbery. He was sent to Folsom Prison to serve his sentence. Walter Jr. would have little memory of his father. Christine set about creating a good life for little Walter, whom she called Sonny. They moved into a small house in the Lincoln Heights neighborhood of Los Angeles. Christine was hired as a telephone operator, and mother and son lived a quiet but comfortable life. On March 10, 1928, when Walter was nine years old, the unthinkable happened. Walter was mature beyond his years and was used to being somewhat independent. Christine allowed him to take short trips alone to pick up a few items at the grocer's for her, or to visit a neighborhood sweets shop. On this day, she gave Walter money to go to a nearby theater to watch a movie. But when Walter didn't return home by dinner time, Christine grew worried. She searched between her home and the theater, but didn't find her son. She canvassed her neighbors, one whom told Christine that she'd seen young Walter around 5 p.m. at the corner of Pasadena Avenue and North Avenue 23. From there... It should have taken Walter no longer than 10 minutes to walk home, but it was growing dark and he still hadn't arrived. Christine called the police. She described her son Walter Collins to the responding officer as nine years old, standing four foot five inches tall with brown hair and blue eyes. She said he'd left home wearing a red plaid jacket, brown corduroy trousers, a gray cap and black shoes. Christine was growing frantic but the officer seemed unconcerned about the missing little boy. He told her the lad was probably just playing with some friends and lost track of time. 
Christine said that if he knew her boy, he would know that this was out of character for him. Walter was a very responsible little boy. He always returned on time so as not to worry her, she explained. Christine and Walter had only each other in this world, and they were extremely close. No, he'd never behave so irresponsibly, she insisted. The next two things the officer told Christine would shock and alarm her. Perhaps, he theorized, Walter had too much responsibility and had decided to run away to enjoy some freedom. Christine thought this was ludicrous and told the officer so. She pleaded with him to enter a missing persons report so the officers could begin searching for her son. Still unconcerned, the officer finally told her that, in any case, a missing persons report would not be acted upon until 24 hours had passed. She reminded him that Walter was a child, not an adult, but this still didn't sway the officer to act immediately. He explained that most of the time, missing children returned home within a few hours. The Los Angeles Police Department didn't have enough manpower to search for every child reported missing, but more than likely, they would return home on their own, he concluded. Christine had no choice but to wait until the next day for the police to begin a search for her son. She was sure he had not run away and was convinced that he had been kidnapped. She spent a long and restless 24 hours before officers were sent to her neighborhood to begin searching for Walter. Christine's neighbors were questioned, and a few would report sightings of the little boy. One neighbor told police she'd seen Walter in a car with, quote, two foreign-looking people, unquote. The boy had begged to be let out, she said. If true, it's strange that she didn't report this to police immediately. Someone else, possibly hearing the report about the foreigners who may have taken Walter, said that an Italian-looking couple had inquired in the neighborhood where Walter lived just days before he disappeared. Again, no report was made, and they did not share this information with his mother. Police questioned everyone in the neighborhood with a police record, but no viable suspects were identified. Walter's father, still incarcerated at Folsom, contacted investigators to report his suspicions that former prison inmates may have abducted his son for revenge. Walter Collins Sr., whose true legal name was Walter Anson, explained that he worked in the prison cafeteria and was responsible for reporting inmate infractions. It was his contention that one of these men, newly released from prison, may have kidnapped Walter. This lead was checked out, but came to nothing. A month after Walter was reported missing, nearby Lincoln Park Lake was searched for the boy's body. No body was found. The LAPD had come up empty in their search for Walter Collins. Local newspapers reported on the lack of progress made in the search. At the time, the LAPD was facing scrutiny by the press and the public for its involvement in several corruption scandals. It was the public's opinion that the LAPD did little actual police work and instead spent their time bullying citizens, taking bribes, and playing politics. Now they couldn't even find a little boy, they scoffed. Criticism of the police department grew louder as stories about the distraught mother, Christine Collins, and her missing boy were splashed on the front page of the Los Angeles Times. The police were under intense pressure to solve the case. Then five months later, over 2,000 miles away, a boy was found wandering alone in a small town. When asked his identity, he said his name was Walter Collins from Los Angeles, California. 
In August 1928, five months after nine-year-old Walter Collins was last seen, a young boy was picked up in DeKalb, Illinois. He was wandering and alone. When he was asked his name, he first said it was Arthur Kent. Police could find no record of a missing boy named Arthur Kent. When asked where his parents were, he could only say that his father had abandoned him. Unable to get any further information from the boy, he was placed temporarily with a foster family. Authorities continued to try and identify the boy. He told them a story of being picked up by his father and driven across the country. He hadn't known his father, he said, but went with him when he'd showed up at his home in Los Angeles. He'd been afraid to give his real name, he explained, as he didn't want to get his father into trouble for abandoning him in Illinois. His real name, he now told officers, was Walter Collins. Police in DeKalb contacted the LAPD and asked if they had a missing boy by that name. Did they, they replied. There had been a massive search for the lad who'd been missing for several months. Photographs of the boy found in Illinois were sent to the LAPD. They confirmed he was the Walter Collins who was missing from their city. Now Walter's mother, Christine, was told the miraculous news. Her son, Walter, was alive and well. She, of course, was ecstatic and quickly agreed to pay for the boy's train fare to Los Angeles. Seriously? So strange that the LAPD made her buy the ticket. Of course, the public was also overjoyed at hearing the news. Reporters and photographers were on hand to document the happy occasion when mother and son were reunited at the train station. All of the top brass from the LAPD also turned out for the reunion. This was a big win for the department. Although, let's be clear, it wasn't through their efforts that the boy was found. Even so, being able to report a happy ending to this story would help the police department dispel some of the negative publicity it had received. But as soon as the boy got off the train and approached Christine, her face fell. The boy was all smiles, beaming at her, but she backed away, confused. That's not my son, Christine said. Captain J.J. Jones, who was there to take some of the credit for bringing the boy home, thought he'd misheard her. What did she mean? Christine repeated, that's not Walter. Now with photographers and newspaper reporters witnessing and documenting her reaction, the moment became awkward. Jones, embarrassed, tried to come up with a quick explanation for Christine's response. Of course the boy was Walter, Jones insisted. Christine was probably in shock and still couldn't quite believe that her boy had been returned to her after so many long, agonizing months. It was quite natural that she'd feel confused, he explained. Now Christine really was confused. Did he actually believe she wouldn't recognize her own son? The child she'd given birth to, tucked into bed every night for nine years? The boy who was her whole world? No, of course this wasn't Walter, she said louder now, beginning to panic. This wasn't Walter. It wasn't. Where was her son? Captain Jones quickly tried to salvage the situation. He took Christine aside and told her that the boy was Walter. She was in shock and not thinking clearly, he told her. Jones assured her that when she took the boy home and the strain of the last few months subsided, that she'd see that he was her son. Jones told her to, quote, take the boy home and try him out for a while, unquote. She would find that her memory would clear and she would soon recognize the boy as Walter. As reporters shouted questions to the boy, he answered to Walter's name, called Christine mom, and seemed thrilled to be home. Christine began to feel like she was losing her mind. Not knowing what to do, she agreed to take the boy home with her. She was asked to pose for a photo with the boy for the newspaper. She flashed a tentative smile for the photographers, while the boy beamed. 
The boy grabbed her hand and walked beside her as they made their way home. But Christine was certain he was not her sonny. Christine returned home with the boy as if in a fog. She knew, of course, that the boy was not her son, but she'd felt pressured by reporters, photographers, and most of all, the police, to pretend like he was, at least in front of the cameras. She also felt sorry for the boy. She didn't know him, but she was a mother, and he was some other woman's son. She couldn't just abandon him when he had traveled so far and had nowhere else to go. But why was he saying his name was Walter Collins? Was he pressured by the police like she had been? Once her head cleared upon returning home, she tried to question him, but he acted like he didn't know what she was saying. He called her mama. It felt very, very wrong to Christine. Going through the motions until she could figure out how to handle the situation, Christine gave the boy dinner and then got him ready for bed. She took a pair of her son's pajamas out of his dresser and handed them to the boy. When he'd put them on, she saw that the pajama bottoms were much too long for him. This boy had to be at least two inches shorter than her sonny. Christine became angry and then terrified. The police had foisted this child off on her to get her to go away and stop bothering them, she concluded. They hadn't found her son, but in order to make themselves look good, must have talked some poor abandoned or runaway child into pretending to be Walter. Then they'd strong-armed her into going along with this sham. She was furious. But what did it mean if they just announced to the world that Walter Collins had been found? She knew exactly what it meant. It meant that to them, the case was closed. And that meant that they would stop looking for her son. Walter was still out there somewhere, and if the police had anything to do with it, he would never be found. Christine realized the only hope she had at bringing her boy home was to take matters into her own hands. And her first order of business was to prove to everyone that the boy lying in Walter's bed was an imposter. The boy's height wasn't the only indication that he wasn't Christine's son. Everyone who'd known the real Walter also wasn't fooled. Neighbors, friends, and teachers all could tell the difference between this boy and Walter Collins. Police Captain J.J. Jones dismissed Christine's word on the matter, so she knew she'd need proof to convince him. She had others write letters to attest to the fact that the boy was not Walter. Meanwhile, the press wanted more information about Walter's disappearance and how he was discovered. Police questioned the boy to get the story, but they were frustrated when he would not give clear answers to their questions. They needed to find out who had taken him and transported him to Illinois. The press wanted his abductor or abductors brought to justice. But each time they tried to interview him, he said almost nothing. A member of the press was quoted as saying, it was as if the boy was keeping a secret and no one could get him to say anything that he knew, unquote. For her part, even as she gathered evidence, Christine continued to house and care for the boy. She didn't want to get on the LAPD's bad side because she was still going to need them to search for her son once they finally realized their mistake. Three weeks after taking him in, Christine returned to police headquarters with proof positive that the boy was an imposter. 
she'd taken him to Walter's dentist, who'd examined the boy. The dentist's records showed a clear difference between the boy's teeth and Walter's. Christine turned over signed affidavits from the dentist, as well as others who'd known Walter, and were willing to swear that this boy was not him. But instead of admitting to their mistake and identifying the boy as Walter, Captain Jones became angry. He accused Christine of being a bad mother, who was denying her own child so she could live her life unencumbered. Maybe Christine herself had sent her son away, or had somebody staged a kidnapping, hoping to, quote, get rid of the child that way, Jones speculated. He also accused her of trying to humiliate the police department. Jones said that her lies would bring ridicule to the LAPD, and he wasn't going to stand for it. At that time, the LAPD had a catch-all charge called a Code 12. The police could use a Code 12 designation to jail or even commit someone who was deemed to be, quote, difficult or an inconvenience to the department. Jones now called Christine Collins a lunatic. His report would state that she was so deranged that she could not identify her own son. He called a Code 12 on her and forcibly had her committed to the psychopathic ward of the Los Angeles County Hospital. Christine was locked up and forced to take medication for her, quote, mental illness. She was treated inhumanely, she later said, and also saw other women on the ward she was housed with treated harshly and abused by the staff. While some of the patients did suffer from mental illness, others had been committed by their parents or husbands who wanted to control their behavior or keep them from filing for divorce, seeking custody of their children, or other non-criminal behavior. Once they were committed, they could be locked up in the hospital indefinitely. But while Christine was locked away, the wheels were still in motion to discover the imposter boy's true identity. Christine had her supporters, including Reverend Gustav Briegleb, a Los Angeles Presbyterian minister whose sermons were broadcast on a local radio station. He used his pulpit to call out corruption in the city of Los Angeles and the Los Angeles Police Department. He criticized the LAPD's mishandling of Walter Collins' disappearance and their unwillingness to listen to Christine's claims about the imposter. After discovering that she'd been committed on the orders of the police captain, he redoubled his efforts to support Christine's cause and let the public know about her mistreatment and worked to get her released. A handwriting expert was commissioned to compare samples of the boys' and Walter's writings. He concluded that the handwriting samples did not match. In particular, he pointed to the strange way the boy wrote his R's, which were quite different from Walter's. He explained that this form was commonly taught in Illinois, but not California. Once the handwriting expert's findings were reported in the press, Captain Jones had the boy brought into the station where he questioned him himself. At first, the boy insisted he was Walter Collins, but when the police captain told him that the jig was up, he gave his name as Billy Fields. After more questioning, he confessed that this was also a lie. His true name was Arthur Hutchins Jr., Arthur was not nine years old, but 12. Originally from Iowa, his mother died when he was nine. His father had since remarried, and Arthur, his father, stepmother Violet, and little brother Billy lived in Illinois. Arthur loved the movies, but hated school. He often skipped school to catch a film at the local theater. He especially liked westerns. Tom Mix was his favorite actor. When he didn't have enough money for a ticket, he began stealing small amounts of cash around town. Arthur was caught and reported to the police. 
possibly by his stepmother, whom he did not like. To teach him a lesson, the police decided to put him on a form of probation. He was required to write a letter each week to the police captain to report how he was doing in school, if he was following the rules at home, etc. Well, this was all just too much for the strong-willed boy. He wrote one letter as required, and the second week decided to run away. He took to the road, begging for meals and handouts when he came upon kind adults. In a diner in one town, he met a drifter and struck up a conversation. The man showed him a newspaper article about the missing Collins boy. He remarked how much Arthur looked like Walter. Later, that would give Arthur an idea. After about a month, Arthur Hutchins was picked up by the police in DeKalb, Illinois, a good five hours drive north from where he'd run away. Of course, there was no database in 1928, so the police had no idea who the boy was, but the entire nation had heard about little Walter Collins missing from Los Angeles. Arthur decided it was his chance to get to Hollywood and perhaps meet his favorite actor, Tom Mix, so he said he was Walter Collins. He figured as soon as he arrived, he'd be found out, but he thought he could find a way to run off and have an adventure in Tinseltown. But he said for some reason, Christine Collins, quote, played along, unquote. Mrs. Collins said I was her boy, didn't she? He later told reporters. Well, then I wasn't exactly fooling her. She was nice to me. And it's fun to be someone you aren't, Arthur said. He never once expressed remorse for what he'd put Christine through. It was all a game to young Arthur. His stepmother, Violet, arrived on a train to take him home to Marion. When he saw her with his little brother, Arthur said, There's Mama and Billy. Arthur had been quite a handful during the time he'd been in police custody. Tell your mother how you've almost made a wreck of the police department, one of the officers teased. Arthur breezily replied, You've made a wreck out of me, before standing with his stepmother for photos. Arthur unwisely told his father if he was made to return to school, he'd run away again. To keep this from happening, Arthur was sent to the Iowa State Training School for Incorrigibles. The name tells you all you need to know. He never did get to meet Tom Mix. While the imposter was being found out and returned home, Christine remained locked up in the L.A. County psych ward. It wasn't until 10 days after Arthur Hutchins confessed his true identity that she was finally released. With the help of her supporters, she filed a false imprisonment case against the LAPD. She won the case, and Captain Jones was ordered to pay her $10,800, or over $150,000 today. He was also given a four-month suspension without pay. The story of how Christine Collins' son went missing and then was given a replacement child by the police would be an unbelievable tale in of itself. But the truth of what actually happened to Walter Collins would be even more shocking. The full story will be revealed in part two, but I'll give you a bit of a sneak peek right now. same month that Arthur Hutchins was being discovered as an imposter, sheriff's deputies received a call about some strange goings-on at a ranch in rural Riverside County. The call came from a woman in Canada. She was calling to report that her brother had been living with their uncle for two years and was working on his ranch in that county. She'd just returned from a visit to the ranch and had witnessed evidence of the boy being abused. 
She'd been afraid to confront her uncle about what she'd seen, but upon returning home, she'd informed her mother, and now they wanted to have the authorities look into the matter. They gave the sheriff the address to a property in the small town of Wineville, California. On September 15, 1928, deputies paid a call to the ranch. But by the time they arrived, the owner had fled. His nephew, Sanford Clark, age 15, had been left behind. Sanford, at first, was tight-lipped, but upon being taken to the sheriff's station and questioned further, he began to relate a tale so violent and shocking that deputies couldn't believe what they were hearing. If what the boy told them was true, his uncle was a violent predator and no less than a serial killer. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. You can get part two early if you're a Patreon member. Go to patreon.com slash onceuponacrime to sign up. If you join at the $10 level, you'll have access to all bonus episodes and receive a premium gift. At the $5 level, you will have access to the last two seasons of bonus episodes and receive an OUAC lunch tote. And at the $2 level, you'll have access to the current season of bonus episodes and receive a sticker and bookmark pack. All Patreon members can listen to every episode ad-free, get early release episodes, recap videos, and sneak peeks of upcoming series. Go to patreon.com slash onceuponacrime to sign up and start receiving your perks immediately. I've provided a link in the show notes. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Our administrative and production assistant is Lorena Garcia. Until next time, be good to one another.